Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. This is the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. Welcome back to the show that is here to help you take advantage of the commercial property market. And I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. I haven't always been involved in commercial property. And like most, I started off with those baby residential buy-to-lets. Those one and two bedroom properties. Then I tried to figure out how to get more scale and really improve our cash flow position. And in time, I managed to do that, to make that transition into commercial. However, what I didn't realise at the time was how much you can affect the value of your commercial investments. But I appreciate sometimes it can be a challenge to get started. As with residential, it is possible to use a rent-to-rent strategy, where you effectively lease a space from a landlord and then create a higher value offer, which will allow you to benefit from an operating income. A great example of this, of course, is in serviced offices. And we had the interview with Jamie Vine recently where he's been doing that in Australia. And the other part is co-working. So that brings me to the fourth episode of the co-working mini-series. And I had the privilege of interviewing James Waba, who operated two co-working spaces in Manhattan on that rent-to-rent basis. He talks about the benefits and challenges of that model and gives some great tips on how to make it work. During the interview, it was difficult for me not to dive down lots of different rabbit holes because clearly James has a lot of great experiences to share, but we just couldn't cover everything. I did love the story about Travis Kalnick of Uber, who worked in his space for a period of time. You must listen out for that in the episode. We cover lots of ground. So if you want to learn more about the operations of a co-working facility, then listen up as James and I talk about the multifacets of running a successful co-working business. Hi, James. Thanks for joining us on the Commercial Property Investor podcast. Really great to have you here and to join us for our co-working series. So can you just tell our listeners where we're, where we're speaking to you? Where are you based just now? Right now, I'm in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And uh, yeah, it's a nice sunny day. And I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Beautiful. Thanks, James. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, so before we get stuck in, what I want to do is ask you what your definition of co-working actually is. Because I, I, I had that interview with Jamie Russo, and it was a great interview. But I did feel that we were slightly off between us or what we actually thought the definition of co-working was. And that just made me realize, do you know what? It's not a universal word. It means different things to different people. So what would be your definition of co-working, James? I would say the, um, my definition of co-working is flexible workspace uh, with a heavy emphasis on community. So, um, and that's everything that we tried to do with our co-working spaces is that we wanted to build a community and give people a place to work where it was flexible and that they can grow, uh, they can grow their teams or they can, uh, you know, make their teams smaller if they needed to, depending on the time of the year or what they were up to. Um, so community and flexible, those are the two main definitions for me. 
Fab. Okay, so that that's slightly. Those are the slightly less tangible things, aren't they? Really, and and in terms of the actual space, the physical space, what would you see typically within a co-working space? Would you see that as a blend between private office and shared space, or how would you define that physically? Um, I think it's probably a mix between communal workspaces where it's a shared desk thing. Uh, where members come in, they don't sit at a specific desk. It could be private, um, I guess, uh, dedicated desks where it's one place where you go to every day. Um, you can keep your monitor yeah. there. That could also be in an open plan, or that could also be within a enclosed office space. Um, across all, I think you probably need to have an area where people can meet um, and convene, whether it's like a coffee area or a bar, or a little bit of a dining area, or someplace where people can meet that's not their own workspace. Um, so you need to have like a middle ground where people can meet, whether you're in a dedicated space, a communal member where you're sitting at, uh, you could be sitting at a couch one day, or you could be sitting at a, a new desk the next day. Um, so you need a place where everyone can meet and mingle and connect with each other. Okay, to get that less tangible stuff, that those interactions going, yeah. I mean, a, a great setup would be um, let's say private desks or uh, private offices with an open area in in the middle where people can cross and meet and lounge. Um, yeah. but, you know, the configuration, the configuration is one part, but the other part is also community building and really creating the connections between the members. And that's brilliant. Very personal, personal. Part. Great. I, I really want to dig into some of the stuff that I know that you've been involved in some of the customers you've had. I think our audience is going to find that fascinating, but just before we, dive into kind of those those mechanics let's go back to the start what why on earth did you get into co-working <laughs> what what led well, you to that market and 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 you didn't know you weren't originally from new york so what kind of led you there how did you get to that point well yeah i, I moved to new york city in 1998 um, i moved halfway through college uh, my brother and i started our first company in uh when I, when I was 20 years old in 1998. And um, in a way, that company was a hub for other entrepreneurs and other um, creators to come together because it was, it was an online streaming site. So we were streaming short films for filmmakers. So our apartment became the hub where everyone came together to show <laughs> their films. And then we would upload them, encode them, and then stream them on our website. So I guess my brother and I always felt like being the hub for creatives or entrepreneurs was something that excited us. Um, and we've always felt that throughout our years in the city, but we never really had our own location to do that. After that, after that first business, we start to get into other industries and um, we still miss that vibe of having people come together and, you know, sharing and getting inspired. Um, so that idea about community kind of sparked early on. Um, and we started renting executive suites i think in about 2000 and 2002 there's a company in down on wall street i think it was called like rockefeller group and it was a, a executive suite space and it had a nice office space that was enclosed but there was no community and there was all the only person you knew was a receptionist and yeah. that was it and they had nice coffee um but that was a nice flexible flexible scenario for us because we could rent month to month or maybe it was like a six-month term. So we weren't locked in uh, there. But we were both building our businesses out of that space. Um, 
And then we found another location. We actually started working out of a green desk in Brooklyn, which was uh, Adam Newman's. Um, I w- at that time, I would say it was a flexible workspace. I don't think it, he called it a co-working space, but it was a flexible office space. Um, yeah. So we worked there for a year, but we needed to upgrade because there was absolutely no community in that space, um, in my opinion, and from my experience. Um, not to uh, knock anybody who uh, enjoyed that place, but we didn't feel like it was really scratching the itch of connecting with other entrepreneurs. And that's part of the reason why, I mean, that's the main reason why we worked in that, uh, at, at Greendesk. Um, otherwise we could have worked from home. Um, my brother and I are very close. We could work together. Uh, we were actually roommates at that time. So it wasn't too hard for us, but we wanted a place to be inspired. Um, and then in about 2010, my friend was renting a desk from a guy who had a lease in an office space in Soho, New York. Um, we met the guy who had the lease and he seemed to like it at first, but he didn't really like running the space. He didn't like running the, the community or even taking care of the maintenance stuff that need to be done within the, uh, in the uh, office. So um, one day when the toilet overflowed and I could tell that he was at the end of his rope and I asked him I was like hey you know if you don't want this if you don't want the burden of this I'd happily take it over and then within and then it was almost the end of the month I think it was like the 26th of February 2011 um in within two days we made a deal that I took over the lease I took over all the furniture I took all the existing and he called them tenants I took all the tenants and I was for collecting rent um, and sending in a check on Monday to the landlord um, and it was the best move I ever made and I'm so happy that I did that um, because that really put me in the in the mix of operating a space with uh, it was a you know it was an already moving space and it was kind of like so it's moving pretty pretty well, but it, you know there's things that you could tweak, and I felt that there was a lot of adjustments that could be made, and if we make them right, then we could build a vibrant community. Um, and I really, I I just really wanted to be amongst entrepreneurs, so I was scratching my own itch about you know, for being around entrepreneurs, and I wanted to create a community where other people would be that inspired. Wow, that's great. So that's in Soho, and what was the size? What was the square footage? Can you remember? Uh, that was. 5,400 uh, square yeah, feet. Yeah, okay. And the green room one you were in a few years before, what uh, sort of size was that? Uh, that was Green Desk. That was... Green Desk, sorry. That was a whole, that was a whole building on J Street in, uh, in Dumbo. Okay. So that was, I think, one of two locations that Green Desk had uh, that Adam was running. Adam and uh, uh, McKelvey. Yeah, that's interesting. So... You took over this space. Um, you, I assume you, you obviously kept your own business in there working away, but then you start taking over the facilities management, but more importantly to you, the community side. So what did you change to kind of build that community that wasn't there before? So, I mean, the first thing we did was set up a happy hour. You know, like the easiest way to break the ice is to get everybody in the room, have some good music, have some cocktails you know, show up as a person that's looking out for the members. So, you know, we had hors d'oeuvres or, you know, snacks and stuff. And, and I introduced myself um, and I went around the room. Everyone introduced themselves to each other. 
And that was really cool. I was a, I actually worked in space for one whole year and I didn't know anybody. So there was no like community building activities within that office. Um, and this was the first time where everyone's able to find out what the person sitting right next door to them or the next, <laughs> next desk over what they did. And it was like, yeah. kind of like a breakthrough and people were like, Oh, wow. I didn't know you're a developer. Oh, you're a designer. I could have worked with you. I, you know, I needed you last month, you know, and I could just see these sparks between, between the people during that event. Um, and that was just like a magical moment for us. Uh, I think my brother and I were like, finally, you know, we're, we're seeing entrepreneurs in action. And, and to be honest with you throughout the early two thousands, or the late 2000s, there weren't that many entrepreneurs in New York City. It was pretty rare to meet a person who was launching a business. Um, most people were in finance uh, or people were like recovering from the dot-com bust and they were went into maybe traditional media. Um, I myself, after the dot-com bust, got into real estate because I needed something tangible to work on. Um, but here I was back in you know, the tech startup world and finally scratching that itch of, you know, being around other entrepreneurs. So it was like a hive so that we created. We, we have to give a bit of context here, James. Just tell me some of those companies that came in there, that some brands sure. so, that people may know. Well, at first, there were lots of uh, digital agencies and development companies. Um, and so there are a lot of tech companies in there. And most of those people found out about it through word of mouth or through Craigslist. That was, that was the, the model before I took over. But then when I took it over, I guess our special approach to it was we were community first. And we also wanted to make sure that we were getting high caliber members in the space. So at that time, there were a lot of uh, tech incubators launching, like Y Combinator, Techstars, ERA. Uh, those tech incubators, their process to join or to become, to get into the incubator, you had to apply. So you had to like fill out a form, you had to say what your company does, you have to give some kind of references. Um, and so that was the going trend and entrepreneurs and startups are used to doing that. So we basically took that model and we made that a requirement to even get to tour our location. So you couldn't just come in, knock on the door and get a tour. You had to apply to get a tour. So that kind of set the bar kind of high and maybe created FOMO or interest from the outside. Like, how can I join this elite community? Um, we did have a bunch of smaller startups that were in there, um, not major unicorns at all, but some companies that had some traction. And so we put those logos on our website. You know, people saw those logos and they wanted to join that community. Um, yeah, there's some really interesting people back then. But with that kind of application process, we started to see we started to see a lot of, uh, I guess, interest and things started picking up. I mean, the next day we started we started getting applications. We told all of our members, "Hey, if, if you like what you like what we're doing here and you enjoy it, you know, invite your friends because you know co-working is better with friends and it's great to work alongside your friends." So that started like started getting the ball rolling, um, and then we started getting a lot of applications from companies that were from San Francisco that were relocating to New York City. Um, and so, and these, and these applications usually were members of, you know, they needed like two seats, two desks, um, but they had also raised, you know, $500,000. And that, and we, we asked, you know, how much money have you raised? Who are your VCs? So people were really putting their best foot forward. And we were learning a lot about them. 
we were learning a lot about our members uh, that way. So it wasn't just a blind entry. So when they came in, we had a lot to talk about. And I, I love technology. I love startups. Um, I love entrepreneurs. So I was excited to hear about, um, excited to meet the people who would apply. And we would get into it and we would talk about their business model, where they're going, how they're growing. And so in the early days, um, one of the first companies that joined was Uber. And uh, at that time, it was called Uber Cab. Uh, or no, Uber Taxi, I think. Um, and they had only launched in San Francisco at that point. They had only raised $12 million and they needed, I think, a desk and potentially two desks like next week. Um, and so I was excited. I knew about it. I knew about the concept through reading about them in TechCrunch and I was excited to to meet them. I met um, one of the co-founders then and then later on, Travis Kalanick came in the the CEO, former CEO, he came in, uh, but that that location was going to be their second location, their second location ever, and their first location in New York City. And they needed a beachhead to launch their New York City program. Um, and I was excited for it. I was excited to hear about it. And I, I knew that I, when I met Travis, I knew he was very ambitious, and I mean extremely ambitious. It's always exciting to talk to him and exciting to have him as a member. Um, he's definitely a quirky guy, um, pretty extreme. Uh, but I mean, extreme in presence. There was one yeah. time when he was walking around in our co-working space, which is an open plan. And um, he just kept on saying out loud, I'm going to Goldman. I'm going to go. I'm going to Goldman. I'm going to Goldman, man. I'm going. And it, like, he was excited because he was going to go <laughs> and pitch Goldman Sachs um, about investing or somehow partnering with them to take care of their executives and give them a black car service at their um, on demand. Um, but he's walking around in, in our co-working space barefoot in a very shiny blue suit, extremely shiny, like the kind of suit that you would wear in the 90s if you're going to Vegas or something, like <laughs> shiny. Um, <laughs> and he was walking around barefoot with a five-hour energy drink in his one hand and uh, typing away on a Blackberry on his other hand. And then he would, instant, he would stop periodically to do like 15 push-ups in the middle of the floor. and. That was the kind <laughs> in his <of> blue suit. <laughs> yeah, in a suit, barefoot. Um, and people were just like, who is this dude? Um, but uh, And he was a unique character. I wouldn't say the other members were like that at all. But we did have hard-driving startups. So as far as the other companies that joined, from that point on, we, I think the word of mouth started, spread, uh, started spreading in San Francisco. And so we started to get a lot of delivery companies, um, on-demand delivery services like Instacart, uh, Postmates became a member. Um, they all needed a place to land in New York City to onboard their shoppers or drivers or delivery people. So we were a good fit for them because I understood that they needed to grow. I knew that they needed to have basically 24-hour access. And they needed a place where they can do onboarding for their shoppers, drivers, and uh, delivery people. So every Saturday, they would go into the event space. They would book it, which is nice because they would book it for you know, 60 or so people, but they would have 60 or so drivers. Uh, you know, Uber would come in and have 60 or so drivers come in and pick up their, uh, their free iPhone and get onboarded to become an Uber driver. So I think that was a, a unique value proposition for, uh, that Uber appreciated and that Postmates appreciated and Instacart appreciated because most office spaces wouldn't allow you to do that. Um, I don't know if you could do that in another co-working space. 
that showed that we were startup friendly and entrepreneurs knew that we were there to help them grow. I mean, that was the whole point. Anything we could do to help a startup grow or an entrepreneur grow or a freelancer connect with a client, that's what we were there for. And that wasn't like, I mean, we didn't have anything extremely official except for events and hand-to-hand connections uh, that our community managers did. But um, that was our main purpose there. Um, after that, I think they started off as a team of two. Then they grew to a team of six or eight. And that was about a year, a year long um, that they were with us. And then they moved out to an outer borough where they could, where it was much easier for drivers to, to come up, park the car, get yeah. onboarded. Uh, because doing that on Broadway and in Soho is just too much. Uh, I mean, there's no place to park, really. Yeah. So, out in Brooklyn, it was fine. So they moved to Brooklyn. Um, and uh, I mean, that was pretty typical, though. Most teams started off as a team of one, whether they're coming from San Francisco or coming from London or Europe. You know, just one person pioneering it for the company and then planting a flag, getting settled, and then recruiting new employees in, in New York City. And so to see that happen, over and over again, we started to understand the model. And, you know, we knew that like, okay, with this company's joining, they have two, two desks. We had an open plan and it was very flexible so we could move desks around. We always made sure that we had space for them to grow. Or if not, you know, we hold off seats uh, for another company to move in. One of our companies started off as a team of two yep. and grew to a team of 24. Um, wow. And then they moved on to their own space which uh, I wish I owned another space that they could have moved into, which is something I think you're keen on. You know, how do you yeah. migrate those members? Yeah, try not to lose them, or at least, I mean, eventually these guys sometimes go and buy their own buildings, so it's difficult to, to help facilitate that. But in terms of that model, can, can you just sort of share with us what the mix of the space was? You know, was it, you mentioned quite open plan, but was there much private space? And, and how many people did you sort of get into that space overall? If you were at maximum capacity, what was your kind of numbers? So the, the max capacity was 125. And that was probably a mix of 80% dedicated uh, seats. And yeah. the rest was communal. And um, the dedicated space was, it was in an open plan. So we had sound dividers and you know little spatial dividers, but it was all open. Everyone could see each other, feel each other's energy. Um, I I love that that feeling where you could look across the room and see 125 people working, cranking away. Of course, we had you know phone booths and um, you know and, and conference rooms that people could go to, um, but. When people were heads down, they they could see other people walk in early, leave late, you know, and keep on great pushing. energy. And so that was really exciting. That's great energy. I can just I, I totally know what you're talking about. I've I've looked at a few places in in New York, and some of them um, are quite. I mean, this is a few years later, but some of them are quite corporate, and they look yeah. almost um, vanilla. Now they might have some quirkiness. But it's almost manufactured and repeated like a cookie cutter, right? But but the type of space you're talking about is really individual, isn't it? It's, it's trying to create something that is unique for the customers. And the customers are part of that uniqueness, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, it was – I wouldn't say that we were super high-end, especially our first location. It was 
I, to be honest with you, the, the person that had the space before the guy who I got the space from, the original leaseholder, they were a hoarder. So they had so much junky furniture from previous members and pre- previous tenants. They had magazines from like 1999 in there, like old wired magazines. And uh, I don't know, it's it pretty funny. But so we had to clean it out and rehab the place, you know, rearrange it. Um, every time we got a new member, we would get a new, a new desk or a new chair for them. And so, you know, we constantly upgraded the space. Um, and so we had that for about, we had that location for about four years. And, um, but within the first year of, of taking over that lease, we signed our lease for a second location. And that was kind of like, that was a fresh start where we could really create the uh, environment that we uh, wanted and what we learned and what we learned from, from the first one. Uh, oh, that's brilliant. That's interesting. So, yeah, okay, so what, let's let's move on to that second one then. So it was four years in, 5,400 square feet, lots of activity was, and lots of new start. Well, after one year in, or six months in, I started looking around oh, for okay. another location. And because I, the model was, it was really humming, it was cranking. And this was also really early days of co-working. So, you know, beyond, besides it working, we were just excited about the mod, like the models working. It's not that the business that had been, it wasn't tried and true, but we were figuring it out as we were going like, hey, do we make people sign up for three months, two months, one month? Do we take yeah. a security deposit? You know, when do we charge them on the like first of the month, on the fifth of the month, or maybe on the 27th of the month? You know, we were figuring out these, all these things out. And, um, and we knew that charging on the 27th was best because it took time for the money to clear so that we can then pay all of our costs on the first. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that model worked. Well, but we 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 started getting lots of applications, um, more than we could handle with our first location. Within six months, we were well. We could only seat eight people, eighty people in our first location, um, but with some tweaks and some changes to the layout, we were able to increase the capacity uh, to one hundred and twenty-five. But then in six months, we are full at one twenty-five. So we were scrambling to trying to find another location and luckily we did um, we found another space about 10 minute a 10 minute walk away um, in the lower east side which is like an, an area that's i would say the hidden jewel of of manhattan um, or like the last hidden jewel of manhattan it's um, got its own vibe and character very creative kind of edgy and, uh, and it's, it's a unique unique space and the location that we found was really really unique it actually was a Formerly, it was like an underground fight club for hipsters. So it was a place where people used to do like boxing matches on Saturday nights. And uh, you could probably look it up on YouTube. But it was uh, it was pretty raw, but we were ready to put some sweat into it and make it the space that we wanted it to be. What size was that space, James? So that that space, I mean, the first landlord that owned it at that time, he said it was 7,200 square feet. Um, and which is bigger than our old space, but it was a full, full square open plan. There was no loss factor basically. Um, so it was, it was a great, great and huge windows, you know, windows 360 degrees, um, in the heart of Lower East side. And, uh, I mean, it was pretty rough, but it could definitely be fixed up. My brother and I had experience in construction 
and um, in hospitality, and we've invested in some restaurants. So we've done renovations in New York City. So we knew what could be, you know, what we could do there. Um, so we find, found a general contractor that we worked with, and we had an architect, and we built it out to the spec that we wanted. Um, and we also had the good news for that one is that we had demand, already pent up demand for that location. We had applications coming in, started promoting it right away on our website. Uh, before the space is ready, just to get those people signed up. We had floor plans and uh, pre-sold some. We had some members that moved out of our our Soho space. And, you know, we were bummed to see them go. But they joined an incubator in New York City. And then when they, six months after that, they came back and said, hey, listen, we'd love to join Projective again. Do you have space? And luckily at that point, we did have a new location. So we opened up with 40 new members, 40 new start, um, I guess 10 new startups with 40 new members from an old member that basically grew their team from a team of two to a team of 10. And so that was a great way for us to kickstart the new location. We built that one to fit them more or less. And yeah. we knew that they were going to be the model going forward. So you mentioned that you took some learnings from the first one into this one. And was that some of that to do with layout or what, what things did you learn on that first project you thought right we're going to change tweak this one on the second one we knew that we wanted to have a separate event space that wasn't doubling as the communal communal lounge okay. uh, like previously our communal lounge turned into an event space at nighttime or a happy hour place um, but we wanted to have a dedicated event space uh, we wanted to have more uh, since there was more members there's going to be more members in this location uh, we knew we need to have more conference rooms more phone booths um, we wired everything underneath the floorboards. So we had dedicated fixed wired access to the internet uh, under each, uh, each workspace and power as well. So just cleanliness, ease of use, you put it, you know, everything's wired under, under the board. So it was easy. Um, yeah, it was fun. It was fun designing it too. I mean, it was a real labor of love creating this space. And I have to give credit to my brother uh, who really designed everything in there very thoughtfully. That's that's really interesting. Interesting you've decided to go for changing having that kind of open plan co-work space or shared space that was doing events to trying to do it separate. Did that work financially? Because, um, you know, sometimes people still do that. They still try and have an event space slash shared space all out the same. Sometimes it's physically it's the only way they can do it. But did, did that financial model work where you were doing the events separately, which, of course, you're not interrupting members and things in the other area? How did that work out? Um, it worked out, well to, well, to be totally honest and clear, the event space wasn't completely separated from the dedicated workspace, uh, but it was just a little bit more established uh, where we okay. could do an event, also have communal members, and also have dedicated members yeah. all functioning and working throughout the throughout the day. Um, we had to pick and choose our battles though. I mean, we, sometimes we couldn't host events. They wanted to do a daytime event and we, we would say no, just because it seemed like it'd be a little bit too much. And our members came first and we didn't want to, you know, ruin their experience. Yeah. Um, you know, we, there's always another event that we could have, but our members mm -hmm. are pretty much at that point, like family. So you don't want to piss them off. How many of the events were for internal members? Not, not as in you're putting them on, but actually internal members were using the event space to launch products or bringing customers. And how, and how much was it actually external customers coming in to use the space? 
Um, I would say it was, I would say it's about 70, it was about 75% outside, uh, outside okay. people looking to rent our event space. Uh, but, you know, we, I mean, we did the same thing with our event space. We, we made it like an application process. So we were getting highly curated events uh, that were focused around startups and focused around like the startup ecosystem. And we partnered with companies that were, um, we partnered with publications, online publications that were focused around technology. So we knew that that would be a great fit for our members. Our members wouldn't be too mad if the CEO of Spotify is giving a lecture or giving a talk. You know, we knew that our members would love that. Um, yeah. And and the publications knew that they were in, had a ready built audience for you know what they were going to be presenting. So we worked with a company called Pando Monthly or Pando Daily. Um, they were a online publication covering tech. Uh, they were in San Francisco, and they would fly in every other month and do events at our space. And so that worked out really well. Um, they paid the regular uh, market rate for that for that space, um, but our members got a discounted rate whenever they wanted to host events. And we also, um, as Projective Space, we also hosted events for our members. We did like demo days and product launches, and so we would get a couple couple of companies to show off what they're working on, um, and you know, basically like do dry run pitches in front of our members to get feedback and get insights on how they can perfect it before they go live at you know at a big tech tech conference. This is really interesting. So I, I'm I'm learning lots and thinking in the back of my head about what we're doing and how do I start applying stuff that you're talking about. And just out of interest, let's just close the loop now, James, because you did exit that business. And and yes. can you just sort of take us through that process? And of course, another key component here is landlord, because you're doing that that rent to rent model where you're rent taking the space space on a lease, albeit sublease in some scenarios. But at some point the space has to go back or you need to exit. Can you just talk us through what happened there? Sure, sure. Um, I think the model that I explained that we were doing, I don't know if it's for everybody. So I'm not saying that this is the one, the one way to do it. It was very yeah. uh, hands-on, labor-intensive, a labor of love. I worked in the location every single day. I was where my desk was. I was amongst all the members every day. I met every single person who applied. Um, and... Uh, so I was very close to it, but it you can't do it pass. It's not pa a passive income uh, yeah, business. Yeah, but a lot of fun. We also had a lot of fun. I mean, I I made amazing connections and relationships through that. Uh, I met my fiance at my um, co working space, which I you know maybe these days that's not a good thing to do, but it worked. <laughs> we're 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 getting married next May, so um, and I met Fantastic. her probably month met her month one. She's been an amazing supporter of what we were doing. Um, she also stuck around too as a member for a long time. Uh, so the relationships were great. <laughs> the things you have uh, to do to keep what, members. Seriously, sometimes you have to get married. Um, <laughs> it's funny because this, I, two weeks ago, I went to another wedding of two other members that got, uh, that met at our space. And nice. so it's nice to see that it was a good place for people to connect. Um, but going back to what you were saying, our, you know, you signed, we signed a lease. Well, the first location, basically, we I took I assumed the previous lease. It had four years on it, and it was 
great. The economics worked perfectly for what we were doing. Um, my rent was eleven thousand dollars at that time, you know, but I was bringing in like thirty k, you know, uh, yeah. off membership dues, not not event space. So that that worked out well, and it was a small. I mean, for the square footage, it was a great. Um, it was a great spread. Um, but at the end of the four years, the landlord wanted to double the rent to 25K. Yeah. So that wouldn't work. Um, <sighs> and we and we had already been moving on with our new location. And we loved our new location, the, the one on the Lower East Side. I mean, that was optimized for everything that we needed to do and wanted to do. And that was the model going forward. So we were fine with saying goodbye to the first one. Um, the, uh, but then all good things come to an end as well. Um, in the second location. So eight years after running our space, the landlord wanted to double the rent also. Different landlord, same model. You know, once something's good, uh, you know, they want to make it even better for themselves. And we yeah. took a raw space, improved the improved the location, um, you know, redid all the wiring and made it an amazing location. And then uh, they wanted to double the rent. Um, and that's their prerogative and that's fine. Um, but at the end of eight years, I was a little burnt out on running a physical community, um, being there day to day, or mostly day to day, um, and I I wanted a change. Um, so, you know, I've been getting back to my roots of real estate investing and other types of tech startup investing, and that's kind of like where my next path is. But I I do love co working, I. I do love real estate and I love community building. So my next move is probably in, in some kind of intersection between those three. It's interesting that you, you felt you got burnt out Well, not felt you did because although it's really energizing, it's it, you're, and I heard you say that you're in hospitality as well. So clearly that's where your um, energy about building rapport with customers and developing relationships and all that lovely stuff comes from. But if you were to, do it again. If you were to talk to your younger self when you're going through the process, would you have tried to get you to do it slightly differently or would you have done it exactly the same way? The way that you were fully uh, vest invested yourself? I probably would have... Well, this, this, we, this was completely bootstrapped. So... It was self-funded and funded by membership dues. Um, it wasn't funded by investors. So every dollar we put into the business, um, you know, they were definitely in their early days of building out these locations and getting them up to full capacity. You know, it was pretty lean, um, but it, we, it was definitely financially viable to hire staff. Pro I probably, to do it over again, I probably would have raised money um, and had a little bit more cushion during those leaner years, uh, those like startup years. Um, probably would have given me some more negotiating power, maybe longer terms on some of the rents. Um, you know, if I could commit to a longer time because I knew I had the cash to, to do it. Yeah. You know, by, because I had that investment. And that would have also probably freed up my time and my brain a little bit where, you know, I wasn't worried about the air conditioning unit breaking or flooding you know, of having a flood in the building in the middle of the coldest winter ever where there's icicles on the inside of the uh, windows. Um, <laughs> that wasn't fun. 
that was tough. I mean, the fiber optic cables in Manhattan and under the underground in Manhattan all froze and cracked. So oh. not only was there a, a flood, no electricity, there's also no internet. So that was tough. <laughs> you know, maybe I could have paid a, a person to take care of it all <laughs> on a yeah. Saturday. We lose water, we lose heat, that's one thing. But if we lose internet, we're all screwed. <laughs> yes. I, another thing that I would have done, definitely. I mean, you, you lose your internet, you're done. <laughs> um, also, another thing is, if I was to do it over again, I would have taken investors and I would have bought buildings and ran the co-working space in a building that I owned where all the blood, sweat, and tears would have been, would have been all worth it because I would have had equity in the building. So yeah. I, I would say that's yeah. the difference. Um, that's really where I would have put the money if I raised money, um, either in buying buildings, smaller building, you know, just getting equity in a nice office building would have been terrific. Um, yeah, so that's probably one thing I would have done differently. Um, I think okay. co-working is a great model, especially if you own it or if you are doing a management contract with the landlord. Okay. So I, I, I got a couple of routes I want to go down, right? But but first sure. of all, just to close that off about the landlord stuff, I need to ask the question. When you guys moved out of that co-working space, landlord took over the space again. How did the space, what happened to the space? Did another operator come in? Did he rent it out to a different type of business? What what happened? Um, I. So when we moved out, I think it was about, 10 months between the time we moved out until they had a new new tenant moved in fully. I don't know when they signed the lease with them or yeah. how long the build out took. Um, they did do some significant changes to the build, to the location. Uh, so there was some renovation time, probably about two months worth. Um, but they were running a different business model. It wasn't a co-working model. It was a, yep. a, a digital agency where they were getting paid millions of dollars to create uh, influencer campaigns uh for brands so they were their their income wasn't related to the space that they were renting yeah so, so from the, so that model if, worked out yeah so from the landlord's point of view um and, and unfortunately from your point of view or co-working point of view was he did manage to find a customer who's willing to pay this higher rate that he wanted but obviously it changed the demo the demographic of the type of people that were coming into a space was it just the space that you owned, that you were in that you owned, or did you own the rest of the building as well? Uh, the landlord owned the whole building. So there's about right. uh, four, four floors, and we were on the third floor. Did you get any new tenants from your activities? Yeah, those are long-term leases that were in place um, 25 years before I was even wow. there. So they were, they were long-termers. Um, and there wasn't much, much I could do there. But I did work with a lot of brokers to help members move out and get into other buildings. Um, so I had a great relationship with the broker community in New York City where they would refer clients to us that were too small for them. And um, they were the right size for us. And then, you know, 12 months later, there'd be a team of eight and they would need 5,000 square feet for themselves. Um, so then I would call up that broker and say, okay, they're ready. They're like, they're cooked. Yeah. They're ready to go. <laughs> and, and that relationship worked out really well. Also, working with incubators themselves worked out really well because they once once you graduate through an incubator, you raise your million dollars, your team of two, and you're going to grow your team to a team of eight. We were a great landing place for those kind of 
startups. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so we, we've spoken there um, about the landlord and, and his position. And of course, this is this podcast is predominantly about investing in commercial property. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the operation that you did involved investment, it involved capital and expenditure and trying to get your business model working. But of course, as people are hearing, you know, you were fully invested time-wise in making that space work. Had a lot of fun with it, but it wasn't necessarily passive. And, and you're talking now about, well, you know, if I was to do it again, I'd try and buy a building. But sometimes that's not an option for people, particularly for some Manhattan because of the cost and, and all that sort of stuff. But w- what I was going to ask you was a little bit around a formula you mentioned before, James, before we came on air. In fact, another, a few weeks ago, we were talking and, and you brought up this formula and you said, well, you know, at the time when we did those leases from the landlord rental point of view, there was a kind of a proportion, a number that you thought, well, look, you know, to make this model work, the proportion of rent needs to be Y and therefore we can spend the rest of the money or invest the rest of the money or whatever it is in services and things to make the space work. And can you maybe just explain that for me a little bit more about, you know, how, how it was then and, and how you think the models change now, because it's maybe not quite so easy to get that, that those numbers working. And I hope you remember what we're talking about. I'm talking about James. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there was a number and a ratio that my brother and I just stuck to, which made it very tough for us to find multiple other locations. Yeah. Um, and I think it really was, you know, a, a sign of the times. So our ratio was we wanted to find a, a venue where we felt that we could charge three times our rent rate uh, through membership, membership dues. So it would basically our rent would be one third of the total cost. Yeah. And that model worked and we were able to find some locations that where it worked. Um, but more and more, those, those locations where it worked, where the rent was low enough to make that ratio work, it, those, those locations need way too much work to rehab and get up to speed. And that's not really how you can grow fast. And you end up burning a lot of cash into something that you don't own at the end of the day. So yeah, um, it, it became harder and harder to find locations like that. So then we started shifting our model a little bit and we started uh, looking for partners, finding, looking for landlords that would maybe partner with us and creating our version of what we thought a management contract would look like, you know, with the revenue splits and some kind of like break even points. And, and that was, you know, a mental exercise for us. And it was even a harder mental exercise for landlords because they're not, they're not used to that. They don't pay me. I'm going to be, I'm in Florida, you know, they're not, they're not going to be there. They don't want to worry about your headaches. They have yeah. their own headaches or they don't want to have any headaches. Um, and uh, they're happy that way. But for us, you know, we were trying, we were trying that out, but as time has moved on, um, it, I think that this model of a, a, a management contract with a landlord where there's a co-working operator who's going to take over some space and fill it up and then split the revenue, split the profits. I think that model really is going to get some legs because I think landlords understand they need to have community and need to have some kind of vibrancy within their location. But at the same time, they're not, they're not geared for hospitality. They're not geared for hand holding or hosting a happy, a happy hour or making sure that members are happy. It's almost more of like a, 
it's the difference between a landlord and a hotel operator. You know, it's a different business there. Yeah. And same thing with operating a co-working space. It's it, that's closer to operating a hotel um, or operating a gym. Um, so the, that, that's a good. It's hard for landlords to do, but they need they want it. They need it. They see it. They're competing against co-working spaces. Um, you know, people aren't signing a five-year lease when they're a forty-person startup and they've only raised like you know three million. Maybe they maybe they are, but um, it's that's risky. And I think that model is kind of not feasible for startups. They'd rather have flexible workspace where they can expand and move, and so they're not signing leases. So landlords are seeing that and they want to get those kind of tenants at some point, but they're not able to like grow them internally. So I think them partnering with co-working operators is the way going forward. Um, we started doing that with, we even started doing that with um, restaurants and we made basically like co-working operator agreements with restaurants and we would take over their event space and their dining areas that they would normally use for nighttime. And they were pretty much empty during the daytime. And we would use those as co-working as a co-working space, and we did that in New York City uh, for about a year and a half, and it was it was fantastic. And now there's other operators out there like Kettle Space and uh, another one called I think Spacious, which got bought by WeWork. Um, so that model kind of took off. Um, so I think that's where things are moving, where the co-working operator isn't taking down their own space; they're partnering. Yeah, so. The we, we you mentioned Adam Newman at the start, okay. So we, we we need to touch on that again. And for those for the listeners that don't quite have made the connection, Adam Newman was part of, if not the driving force behind WeWork. Um, what what influence did that have on the city? What what influence did it have on landlords in particular? And you're talking there about management agreements, which I think um, Regis who were in the city too, but not as prevalent as we work, were also doing. So how, how did that affect things? Because obviously that was going on in the background. That was the backdrop for when you were developing your spaces. Um, well, we were, their first location was about two blocks away from us. Um, so we, you know, we felt their presence. Yeah. We knew that they were there. I knew a lot of the startups the young founders that were in there. There was a, a section of WeWork in that building called WeWork Labs, and that was really the startup hub of WeWork. And the two founders of WeWork Labs, not Adam and not um, McKelvey, these two young guys, um, Jesse and Matt, they, they were fantastic. They were fantastic to have down the street because they would refer members to us and vice versa. Um, and they were great. I, I really appreciate all the support that they gave me in, uh, in uh, Projective Space. Um, and then down the street from us, we had another co-working space uh, that was very grassroots and full of community. And the, the co-working operator there was Tony Bacicalupo. Um, He had a company called a co-working space called New Work City. So being amongst those two was great because we were feeding off each other's energy. Also, we work with their marketing dollars was spreading word of flexible workspace. Yeah. I don't know if they called it co-working at that time. Um, I think they just called it like workspace or something. Um, they, they have like a love hate relationship with the word coworking. Um, they like it sometimes they don't like it sometimes depending on who's listening and who they're raising money from. But, um, with them in the market, 
they helped out with awareness as far as co-working goes. Um, people would visit that co they would go visit a WeWork, check it out, feel like it was sterile, come and see our space and feel the energy. And then they would become a member of our space. Um, that happened over and over and over again, which was great. So I got to draft off of them. And so I appreciate them for being in the market. Um, the area where I felt it got tricky or was not so much fun is that when my brother and I were looking for other co-working spaces or other office yeah. spaces to lease and then turn into co-working spaces, you know, that ratio started falling apart. We, you know, we were basically finding they, we were able to take the money that they raised and spend ridiculous amounts on leases and basically inflated the market. It was very tough to compete and kind of made it, made it impossible. Um, so it was hard to find any good deals at that point. Um, I mean, when we started, I think it was about $22 per square foot or $24 per square foot. And, you know, it got up to like $75 per square foot, um, wow. which was crazy. And so, yeah. and that would never work for us. It would work if you're funded by SoftBank, maybe. Um, but <laughs> as we know, it actually didn't work, yeah. uh, even if you're funded by SoftBank. So James, so, uh, I have to ask tough. you. I want to make sure we just touch on before you finish where that is right now. Now that WeWork has gone through this metamorphosis, where where is pricing right now? Where are landlords right now? And I totally get what you're saying about that comp competitive environment about finding space and the price. It must have been really difficult. It must have been frustrating because you're fighting against a beast that is funding in a, funded in a completely different way, an alien way that, that seems to have no logic. That must have been challenging. Yeah, it was tricky. I mean, it was tricky on the supply side for space. It was tricky. Um, I mean, they were giving ridiculous discounts where it's like eight months free rent to a startup to join WeWork. And they were also trying to poach our members uh, constantly. I mean, they were yeah. basically going to our website and like finding out who's a member and then emailing them and, all of our members would show emails, laugh about it and stuff. And, uh, and then other co-working operators would come by with a bus trying to recruit members. So it was very competitive. And on top of that, the, they, they probably depressed the, um, the membership dues. So when we went up yeah. to 555, we, we ended up settling 555 per person uh, for a desk. We ended up settling at like 475 uh, per person per desk after we were came in. Um, cause they kind of flooded the market or artificially cheapened the price of memberships. Yeah. So that was tricky. Um, these days, I mean, I, I'm out of the market as far as I haven't really been looking in the office space market, so I'm not sure where things are priced. I'm sure it's low because of, um, you know, the pandemic and people are probably giving up their leases and half those people are probably working remotely and the other half are working maybe at a smaller office space or, or at a co-working space. Um, so, uh, I mean, the pandemic has shaken things up and it, like everything, it, pandemic has accelerated lots of previous existing trends that were growing or percolating and now they're taking off. That must have been really challenging. And, and that all kind of was around that time when I, I guess you, were, you decided to come out of the market and the, and the way the, the landlords effectively supported you out of the market or forced you out of the market would you ever consider getting back in would you consider doing it anywhere else I, I, we had a conversation just before we came online about your your kind of your next projects do you, do you want to just tell us a little bit about 
what it is you're planning on doing and and maybe where co-work sits in your mind now? I think my focus is going to be in in real estate um, and somehow building a community around real estate, um, whether I partner with somebody who has property or or invest in property myself and build a brand around that property or multiple properties. Um, I'm interested in the concept of short-term rentals, multifamily. I also think that there could be communities built around that. Not so much like a um, a co-living thing, but a multifamily community where there's just some kind of connection point between the people that live there. I'm not saying that they're all like washing each other's clothes or yeah. cooking each other food, but you know something around that where there's a, a membership basis and there's amenities. Um, I'm also interested in private membership clubs. I think what Soho House is doing with their, uh, they're doing something called Soho Works. And I think Noya House is doing some, doing interesting things. Yeah. It's kind of like elevated membership clubs with workspace or workspace that's kind of an, ele- an elevated membership club. I think those areas are interesting. Um, yeah, I think those are the areas that I'm focused on. I'm exploring different opportunities. I'm also moving. So, you know, that kind of puts a wrinkle in, you know, I normally would have dug Lots. deep in New York City to figure out my next moves. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll be moving probably before uh, I get that opportunity. Or maybe, you know, maybe we'll find out. I'm going to Austin. If anyone has any great opportunities in Austin, I'm coming. <laughs> well, we'll be leaving your uh, contact details in the show notes, so they'll be able to grab you, James. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, you know, life, life's a series of phases, isn't it? So, you, you, yes. you know, uh, obviously economy and things go through phases too, but personally we do. And and you can look back on some of the things that you've done in the past and and recognize that, okay, there was a lot of fun. Sometimes it was a challenge, but, but I learned lots of stuff. And I think the key thing is trying to take that on to the next project, isn't it? And just mm-hmm. if there was anything you could suggest to somebody that was looking at starting up a co-work now that doesn't necessarily looking at Manhattan, they might be looking at a small town and Wisconsin or a small town in the UK, or they might be looking at a small city somewhere else in in in, in Europe. What what are the things that you learned that you would really impress upon people to to think about to fit into their model that that works well, and that also they should maybe be cautious of, if if that makes sense. So just what are some of the tips you would give really to somebody who was getting started? Well, I think I think there's another area of co working that could work really well i think um i think uh if you were a company like shopify or you were a b2b business or you were a digital agency and you worked with lots of startups or entrepreneurs you know having your own space that was for your own employees but also maybe having an area that was co-working i think that could work out really well so you can imagine like I'm sure Shopify is busy with other things, but if you were a smaller version of Shopify and you wanted to work amongst other e-commerce sellers and you could create an area where they could work and you could build a community for them and they would use your ser- your service and you could be closer to your, I mean, and you could be closer to your customers and you could create a community that way. I think all great businesses are community-based businesses. And so I think that's an opportunity for corporates to do co-working uh, internally so they can be close to their uh, potential customers or their customers. I also think if you're an agency or a small shop that services startups, I think getting an amazing location 
with some flexible desks that you could rent out to people that you'd like to partner with. You know, in, the, in my opinion, that's co-working too. Um, what you're doing is you're creating a community of people that inspire each other. And I think that's really exciting. I don't think that's going anywhere. Um, so, you know, definitely, I'm not saying don't sign a lease if it works for your business and other businesses could work out of there. Um, I think that's a great model. It's interesting. There is definitely uh, an area where some companies now are managing. They're basically an operator, but they're going in to manage a building for one tenant effectively. But that model there you're talking about, about then facilitating a co-work as well, is really quite interesting. So you're, you're, you're bringing all the hospitality and the, the, the stickiness so that your staff and everybody enjoys the space and feels that they want to stay because it's much more sticky and they're, not going, to, they're going to have uh, employee retention. But also that stuff you're talking about there about bringing in other people, other businesses that are going to add to the to the pot and add not just energy but also connections and all those things. And there are some operators now. I think they're starting to go into that space. I, I have to say, for me, the challenge would be how do I find a customer. <laughs> how do I find a customer to do that? But I, I can see how that model would, would be working. And, and I do believe there are a few doing it. I mean, imagine if you were, I mean, if you were Shopify and you had a location in a city like Austin and they wanted to, um, they wanted to maybe create, or maybe, I mean, yeah, I guess Shopify could work really well with e-commerce companies that are building brands and they could do events where they could, you know, help out those companies grow kind of like an incubator in a way, uh, or, or a place where you could get more ingrained with service offering, or if it's a branding company, they could do design for different companies that they like to work with. I know my, my sister-in-law, she has some clients that rent desks out of her design studio. Uh, so like that's a small model of it. And she has about yeah. six desks and they, and it, it creates some new life. It creates life for, uh, excitement for the, the people that work at the design agency. And, you know, if there ever needs to be work, it, you, the person is right there. You can talk to the person and get some help on your website or, or your branding or packaging. So like I, I've seen that kind of collaboration happen day in and day out with MySpace, but I can imagine it would work well if you were a company that was looking um, to connect with your community, a community of customers. I mean, Spotify would be a great fit if they had a podcasting a co-working space where they had little studios, Spotify hosted them. Um, you know, they were members or something like that. And they were part of the club or community. And, you know, yeah. they could talk to programmers that work at Spotify and make sure that sure, the podcast yeah. gets listed and tricks and tips. I think that kind of thing could happen, but also that, I mean, that might also take the company away. From, I don't even know if it takes the company away from their core business because it is their, those are their customers. Yeah, it, it's difficult. I mean, we, we're, we're just developing a building just now and putting in some podcasting booths. Now, a few years ago, you know, I wouldn't have even considered myself doing a podcast, let alone finding customers that would do podcasts as well. But but now, you know, it is becoming more prevalent. And it, it's not just about podcasting. Of course, it's recording booths. People record on content for online consumption, all that sort of stuff. And it's one of those things that is evolving. And we're trying to I hope get the right positioning for it so we can get new customers that, that are going to take a space with us, but equally then can come and use the podcast booths and hopefully we can give them a bit, bit of support um, on, on what they're doing. 
And that's not, you know, we're not a podcasting business, but ultimately it's helping with space, it's helping with stickiness and, and all that all that lovely stuff. And I think um, just to finish off, that the hospitality bit that you were talking about at the start seems to be coming not just more prevalent for co-working, it's just across the whole um, serviced office sector that if you want to try and hold on to customers when there's more and more noise out there, you have to try and create something a bit more unique. And, and it sounds like the, the spaces you developed were really unique. Um, and I guess it's just trying to make sure that you stay on that front edge while you're developing out your spaces. Equally, if you're a landlord and you think, well, this model is great and it's going to bring energy to my building, but I can't face running it, then you find a partner, right? Somebody who can do it, as you were just saying about perhaps um, a large either business or a large landlord saying, well, look, I need co-working in my spaces. I don't want to run it. So find somebody. Find somebody who can run it for you and, and bring that energy to your building. That's why I was asking you earlier on about your landlord in New York, but it sounds like the building with those 25-year leases, they weren't too bothered about finding new customers. But for some new buildings, that's what they want. They want the footfall and the energy so that they can let these bigger spaces. And I guess if it's your own building, fantastic, right? So they move into bigger spaces. But ultimately, if you're able to support a landlord by positioning yourself so you can bring in more fruitful for them, then maybe maybe they'll give you a discount. Maybe. I guess the market's a bit more buyer-orientated at the moment, certainly in the cities. I think in, yeah. in for, for us now, we're back up. I think I just got the figures today. I think we're back up 93, 94% occupancy right now, which is great. Um, oh, but wow. we're not in we're not in city centers. So I think you know that that we're not a full true barometer of the market. But Definitely in the suburbs and things, things are, are, are picking up. And, and just to finish off, the one thing I wanted to ask you about was the whole working from home. So there is some real um, polar opinions on this one. And, and I put a post on LinkedIn. In fact, I shared a post on LinkedIn. It got hundreds of views and comments and all this sort of stuff of people in one camp saying, no, everybody's going to be working at home from home. The office is dead. You know, the world's changed forever. And, and you know, you look at, I think, to myself personally, I think, well, not everybody's kind of middle class and got a spare room in the in the house or a garden office or something. Some of us just can't work from home with three kids running around or whatever it is. And, you know, some people want to get out and meet other people. So there are different opinions on it. But what what is your thought on the whole working from home is it working from home is it working near home or actually is this going to pass and we're all going to go back to normal what's your thoughts um i mean i think it's going to come down to the the worker and the work style uh, the, the employee and the work style that they have you know what their scenario is i think if you're if you're productive working from home you should be able to work from home um you should have the ability to do that. Hopefully, um, you know, a lot of work can be done remotely. And I guess there's a, an idea that you had to go into the office to get things done. I mean, but for people to commute in from Connecticut into Manhattan to go write emails to someone who works in Connecticut, uh, you know, sending emails to someone back in Connecticut, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, that's what a lot of people do. But going into the city to, for a special meeting to land a client, 
makes complete sense. So like, if you work in finance, like that could be your world, you know? Um, and I've seen that uh, I'm from Greenwich, Connecticut. So I've seen, I've talked to a lot of people that do that and they go in a couple of days a week, they meet with their team, they meet, meet with some clients, but when they have to go write emails or create some models or, or, you know, presentations, they do that from home. They don't need to commute into the city to get onto their PowerPoint or their Excel. Um, and, you know, for developers, they can also work from home. So I think co-working is going to be the great middle ground between working from home and working in a fixed office space. Um, I think instead of working, maybe you'll work from home some days, maybe you'll go yep. to the co-working space on some other days, and then maybe you'll get together with your team, you know, at a co-working space or at the HQ. Um, you know, I think, I think suburban co-working is going to be a big growth market. Um, people are not traveling. I don't think people want to drive into the city or commute, spend an hour or so commuting in when they can work remotely. And I think it, it's going to be great for some of the suburbs too, uh, because local businesses will do well. They won't be, you know, in some towns, all you have is a deli or some like little coffee shop, but now you can have like nice restaurants in your hometown that you could yeah. have a lunch with and eat with other coworkers. I mean, or other people that aren't commuting anymore. So I, I'm excited for that that time um yeah and so we'll, you know we'll see how it shakes up i i've heard about some companies i think google said that they're going to be reducing uh salaries for people that aren't coming into the yeah. office or in if they're in areas that are um i guess cheaper than where they were previously i, I just feel like that's getting a little too nitpicky and slicey yeah. dicey uh, yeah people's lifestyle like i don't know why that's google's Google needs to know what my my cost basis for living is, and then adjust my uh, salary based yeah. on that. You know, that seems a little too much. It's like if you're productive, pay. If I'm productive, pay me. You know, if I'm able to get what I need to get done, pay me for it. Just because I moved out of town doesn't mean my work is less. Yes, valuable. You know, do you get? Yeah. Does that mean I get to do fifteen percent less work? You know, like yeah. So it's I, a short across the bows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also this this discussion is is shaped by companies that have existing leases in place that you know they're they're on the hook for the next year or two or four. Yeah. Or maybe they just signed. Who knows? So that's skewing the conversation. You know, you have landlord. You have um, companies that have signed leases, and of course they're going to say come to work. You know, they they're they are liable for these leases. Yeah, it it will take a while, no matter what, for it to shape out, because, as you say, there's some legacy there that needs to work its way through. And then eventually we'll see what the picture is. But there's definitely seen from our, our point of view on the ground, there is more. We're seeing more people where the bill is being paid for by a corporate rather than themselves. So they're they're You know, we're sending the bill to some head office somewhere and we're getting a lot more day passes. For people that are just kind of maybe we're just getting better at promoting ourselves, but we're getting more people coming in, say, look, I'm coming to the city or coming to town, whatever, it's do a day's work. I found your location. Can we come and use it for a day? And that, that's something that's a, an upward trend for us. Like I say, we might be better at promoting it now, but but it seems to be something that's that's picking up more, which is which is quite interesting. Are those day passes uh, what are you how are you pricing those? Well, we're actually pricing them pretty high compared with our membership. So either we have to 
well, not either. We'll probably have to put our membership price up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, you've got to find the tipping point, haven't you? You've got to find the tipping point. Um, and uh, I mean, you want to make it, you want to make it digestible for someone to actually do it, you know? Yeah. But you also, and you also can hope that they can turn into a longer term member. We did a thing called a network membership where they had access to their, our locations twice a week. Okay. And, um, and with technology, we're able to like track that. And, um, yeah, like it basically they had an allocation of days that they could visit the space and they wouldn't have access to the space on those if they overdid it. If they overdid um, it, yeah. It worked out. Yeah. And I mean, technology has been such a boon for, te- for co-working. I think that was probably the, um, where the burnouts started when we didn't have the technology that we needed, when we were, I mean, in the beginning we were collecting checks and, you know, handing yeah. out physical keys and, you know, had someone on staff to unlock and lock the doors, you know, um, all that stuff got solved so, with tech. Yeah, for sure. And James, you know what? We, we could go down that rabbit hole and we'll still be here yep. tomorrow. Sure, <laughs> we're sure. going to have to wrap it up. Well, that. It's been such a fantastic discussion. Um, it's run on way longer than than um, we normally do, but I just I just wanted to get um, a real good picture of what's happening for you and what's been what what you've been through. So it's been really fascinating. Thank you for joining us, James. If people want to find you, track what you're doing, do you have any Instagram accounts or LinkedIn or anything that's that's a good spot to keep a keep a hold of or speak to you about your Austin Spotify development? <laughs> Or Shopify um, or whatever. Just someone who's growing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you can reach me on LinkedIn, uh, James Waba. That's J-A-M-E-S-W-A-H-B-A. Um, same thing with Instagram. Um, or you can email me, James, at Projective. I appreciate this, Jerry. This is awesome. I love talking about co-working. And, you know, it's been a little while since I've been in the biz, but it's always nice to reminisce. And uh, if anyone's interested in, getting into co-working. I, I recommend it. I think it's great if you're an entrepreneur and you like to connect with people. I think it's a great model. If you're only interested in making passive income, I don't know if it'd be the great fit. Uh, if you own a building, I think partnering with a co-working operator would be a great move to bring vibrancy into your bid, your building um, and also create a pipeline of new tenants for the other floors. Yeah. So um, those are my my parting takes there. Uh, but thank you so much, Jerry. It's been an honor to be a part of this. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to hear more of these. Brilliant. Thanks for being part of the project. And thanks for just spending so much time, James, telling us of your experiences. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much. Running a co-working facility can be a full-on experience. However, if you're looking for more passive income, then you really have two choices. You can build some scale and a team to run the day-to-day operations, or as a commercial property owner, you can harness the energy of a co-working space, just as we were discussing there with James, by bringing somebody to your property, engaging with an operator who specialises in this type of offer. Either way, it's important to keep an eye on this mark as it continues to evolve and disrupt. I have one last episode planned for this series, which is going to be more about the tech available to help you run a co-working space. As you heard, the operations can be quite intense and customer expectations continue to rise, but fortunately so do the capabilities of the software and tech platforms to help you manage your space and those customers. If you want to know more about investing in commercial property, then join us on our Facebook group. 
It's exclusively for commercial property investing and we filter out any spam or unrelated content so that you as a member get the quality content and interactions you need with fellow investors. Look us up. It's facebook.com forward slash commercial property investors. There'll be a few quick application questions you need to fill out and then we'll see you in there. So thank you for tuning in. If you want to find out more about what we do to help individuals get started with commercial investing, then just click on the link in the show notes. And you've been listening to episode 81 of the Commercial Property Investor podcast. And I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. Make sure you have a great week in commercial. 